Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Exodus 20. Uh, We will be back there again in the Ten Commandments. Um, As you're turning there, and if you're looking at your bulletin, you notice the the text is just verse 3. It's the first commandment. And it's just eight words. (laughs) So maybe you're thinking, well, maybe the sermon will be shorter today. (laughs) How about that? Well, we'll see. We'll see. (laughs) But we want to keep it in the context of what we heard last week. Right? It's sort of the, let's not look at the windshield, let's look through the windshield to whom we are hearing from. Uh, In our first song, our song of adoration, it just hit me when we said or sang, he shows the beat of his heart to me in the face of Christ for eternity. Let us, as we hear God's word, hear his heart for his people. So let's go there. Because last week, the, the context, the introduction for the Ten Commandments is God's fierce love. Remember? Let us hear that. Let us receive that and hear commandment number one in light of and in context of that. So now let us hear God's word. Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask him to mold us and shape us by his word, by his spirit. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the clarity of it, the simplicity of it, but also the depth of it, the beauty of it. And Father, I pray this morning that you would shape our hearts Lord, draw out of us uh, an exclusive love for you in response to your love that came first. We ask this for your glory, in Christ's name, amen. Uh, Two spring breaks ago, so not this one that just passed, but the one before that, you know, the one that was like, came right at the beginning of the pandemic and all of that, right? We, we were, my family and I had planned a, uh, a getaway, you know, we were going to go on an adventure as a family, uh, vacation, and we had it planned, uh, of course, it got canceled like everything else back then, and so we went a, couple, a few weeks ago, but in the planning of that trip, uh, we sort of thought, you know, where, where do we want to go? Where do we want to take this family adventure? You know, we could go to the usual places, uh, could go down to the Gulf, right? It's a good place to go. Uh, we could go up to the mountains, you know, and the, the Tennessee, North Georgia mountains. You know, we'd do that too. Kind of the usual spots for us. But then we thought, what if we went somewhere different? <laughs> uh, if you know how I'm wired, that just sort of opens up Pandora's box for me of ideas. <laughs> you can ask my wife. You know, it becomes like this paralysis by options, you know, my, my wheels are turning. I'm like, let's find the coolest, best place to go ever. Let's make it the most epic adventure, right? And Michelle's like, hey, let's just go on a vacation. <laughs> but I'm, you know, I'm like scouring that. We thought we'd go to the coast somewhere. And I'm like looking around like the America coastlines. I'm like, what's the coolest, most unique, off the beaten path place to have an adventure? Um... And again, you sort of get locked in and like, what? there's so many places. Like, what's the best? I don't know. There's so many great options. You know, 
thankfully we did choose something and we booked it and it was Outer Banks, North Carolina and it was new and it was different and it was really a lot of fun. It was a great uh, adventure. And we thought, we came back going, yeah, well, I could do that again. It'd be fun. Or we could go somewhere new and different <laughs> and do the whole process again. But, you know, we, we sort of go through life Sometimes just looking for like that best option, don't we? We have a choice. We have a menu. You know, you go to the restaurant, you have a menu, right? And you say, man, what, what do I really want today? What have I not tried this time? Um, what, what, we go through life, we're looking for that best option that's going to give me like maximum satisfaction. I think we sometimes, if we're honest, we tend to treat God like he's a great vacation destination on a list of great vacation destinations. Don't we sometimes do that if we're honest? We're like, hey, you know, God, you, you can sort of uh, help me along with this. Or like, God, can you get me through this? Or like, I need, I need your help here. Can I have a, a break here? I think we sometimes tend to do that. Well, what if a, a husband treated a wife like that? Or vice versa, a wife treated a husband like that. Say, well, you know... Um, Thanks, you've, you've been faithful, you've committed me to me this faithful love, um, but I kind of want to keep my options open. It's not going to go too well, right? <laughs> that marriage is not going to work. It doesn't work like that. It's not going to go very far. When we receive fierce, relentless love, it will change us. It will change us. It, it actually must or else we perhaps have not received it. So what does that mean for us this morning in this first commandment where God says, you shall have no other gods before me? What does that mean for us? Again, if we're honest, what we hear is the exclusive claim of God, right? Perhaps one of the most offensive aspects of Christianity to the world, isn't it? How is it, why is it so exclusive? Why is there only one way? Why, why can't we have like sort of this open list of options? It's offensive to the world, and if we're honest, we struggle with it too, don't we? Functionally, living it out, we struggle with the exclusivity of God. As followers of Jesus, sometimes we struggle to live it out. Why? Well, Let's dig a little deeper into these eight words, or these eight English words. Um, as I dug into it this week, I had two questions sort of fall out for me. One of those is, when he says, you shall have no other gods before me, the question came up of, are there other gods then? Is he saying, well, don't have any of those other ones that are over there, have me. Is he saying there's others, okay? So that's one question that I want us to wrestle with. And also, what does he mean by having no other gods before me? Okay? So let's, let's work through this together. Are there other gods? We know the answer to that. There, there's not other real gods. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Uh, he says our hearts are like idol factories, Aren't they? Can't we turn just about anything into an idol functionally if we really stop and think about it? I mean, it could be anything. It could be a really good thing. 
It could even be how, how faithfully I read my Bible every day. Look, look how great I've done. I've read, I read my Bible every day this week, and we can make that an idol instead of enjoying God through being in his word. Do you see what I'm saying? We can, we can turn anything into an idol. What, what drives you? That, that's really what we ask. You know, I had a, uh, a friend when we were in England, uh, one of the guys in the church there, he said, if I broke you in half, what would, what would pour out of you? <laughs> What's in your core? What drives you? If we were to follow you around, or if you were to follow me around, or if you were to hear all my thoughts, if, you were to, if we were to hear your thoughts and watch all your patterns for a week or a month or whatever, what would we conclude is most important? It's something for us to wrestle with and think about. I, you know, I, I can uh, sometimes make a god or an idol out of approval. Who, who else has ever done that? Don't we like approval? Don't we like people to like what we do and like us? And so we sort of try to do things according to like, hey, is this, is this good? Like, what do you think about this? And guess what? That hinders us in a whole lot of ways in life. And I can't actually have a personal relationship with approval because it's a non-thing it's just in here it's just going to let me down and leave me with just me and it makes me the the reference point for for life I am the reference point that's a pretty lonely place to be by the way right so are there other gods well no no but we can turn other things into God. <laughs> the other question, though, is what does God mean by having no other gods before me? Uh, I, I used to really think that he was saying, don't put anything higher up on the list than me. Right? Like the, uh, keep me number one on your list. Sort of like keep, keep your priorities straight, right? How many times have we heard that? Get your priorities straight. How many times have we said it? I know how many times I've said it. Get your priorities straight. But as I dove into this further this week, uh, I just realized that what he actually means by before me, and I, I looked at the, you know, since it was a short passage, I dug a little bit into the Hebrew. <laughs> and the word there can, and I think really, I mean, this, this is me, and the commentators seem to agree that it means in my presence. Not, not a priority list, but in my presence. Have no other gods in my presence. Where is God's presence? Everywhere. Is there any place where I'm going to go or be or anything I'm going to do where he's not present there? I mean, there's, like, there's places and things we do where we kind of wish, maybe, God, I wish he didn't see that. I wish he had not. You know, I wish you hadn't heard that thought that went through my, my head, right? But he's there. It's not a priority list. Again, it would be sort of like a, a, a priority list. If God is saying, hey, put me at the top, you know, you have your other things in order. Again, if we think about it in terms of fierce love, it'd be maybe like a wife showing up one day to her husband at home and saying, hey, I, uh, I've got this other guy here um, and I think we can work this out. I'll keep you number one, but can she be on the li- or he can he be on the list? Well, again, how that's not going to work, is it? It's not. It's just not going to work. That's not how love works. 
We often hear uh, maybe said, thought, uh, sort of like something like God and country and family, right? We keep the priorities in order, or God and wife and kids, or God and friends and career. But again, love isn't a list of to-dos or priorities. Why is that? Why does that not work? I think it's because of the, the, what, I, I'll call, what I'm calling the law of worship. What I mean by the law of worship is we will worship something, right? We were created as worshiping creatures. That's how God made us. And something's going to be in that placeholder of something we, the thing we worship. So the law of worship is sort of like the law of gravity, right? You can't help but obey it. <laughs> Right, because I'm going to be attached to the floor because of gravity. The world is round because of gravity, and everything is referenced by gravity. Everything's drawn to the middle. Right? It's the law of gravity. I kind of thought about it that way. It's our reference point. It's not a to-do list. The law of worship is our reference point, and everything else lines up and serves that one thing. Everything else. We can have a list of important things to us, right? And we should. But only one thing will be our, our, the thing we worship. Everything else will be shaped by it. God says, I want your heart. I want all of you. And that's, by the way, as we talked about him freeing his people, that's actually the way we will stay free, is if God has our whole heart. Because then it won't be enslaved to anything else. He'll have, us, he'll have all of us. That is what he wants. It's actually, uh, it's the way we become whole human beings. <laughs> is when he has all of us. A list, a priority list is kind of another way, at least as I think about it, and I've watched in my own life, a, a priority list for me becomes a way for me to compartmentalize my life. It's sort of like, you know, I do the uh, Christianity stuff on this day and maybe on this day, and then I do the, uh, you know, work stuff on this day. I do, you know, ballpark stuff on that day and hobby stuff over here and, you know, sort of kind of piece, pie, you know, pieces of a pie for my life. And I have this here, this here, and this here. And if, if God stays over here in this lane and not over here, then then maybe I can still have this stuff over here. And they become functional idols, don't they? We can, we can turn them into that. But God's saying, I want your wholeness. I want you to be whole. Christianity is not a piecemeal life. We actually long for wholeness, don't we? We all, every human being, I think, really wants to be whole, (laughs) But we have a lot of things that make us not feel whole, right? I uh, once had a conversation with a guy who uh, had, he, he had on his knuckles tattooed Joel 2.25. I was like, I don't have that one memorized. Tell me what it says. <laughs> and he said, the Lord will make up for what the locusts ate. And he's, he's, what, what was in him was that longing to be made whole for what he'd experienced sometime in his past in his story that he felt like he lost a piece of himself or something was taken away. 
What makes you not feel whole? What, what narrative is playing on loop in your head that remi- that's trying to remind you that you are not whole, that you're half of what you ought to be? What, what is, it, is it some ongoing, deep, besetting sin struggle that you're like, I wish I could shake it? But it feels like it, you feel like it owns you. And it's cut you into half of what you should be, half of what God wants you to be. Maybe it's this narrative of fear of rejection or a narrative of addiction or a narrative of depression or something that says, I am not whole, but I want to be. God wants your whole heart. He wants to make you whole. But he's asking for our exclusive love. As James said in our our call to confession, do we hear expectation or even burden? Sort of like, hey, you better get it right, or do you hear, come and be whole in me? Come and be whole in me. He's restoring our wholeness so that he will be the center of gravity. Sort of like the law of gravity, the law of worship. He wants to be that place. How are you feeling? I know as I work through this, I'm like, I don't do a great job of always following the first commandment. Here's the thing. This command of exclusive love for God, having no other gods before me, that that God says, I want to be your center of gravity. It was given not to supermen and superwomen. Remember who it was given to? The Israelites? How did they do? They failed over and over and over and over and God kept restoring them and he kept restoring them and he kept restoring them over and over and over again. And guess what? The disciples, were they like super, super men? No. How did they do? They were weak, unbelieving, dozing, rebellious guys. Fishermen, tax collectors. How did they do? Not so well. But they were repeatedly restored over and over and over again. Wholeness and this call to this, this commandment is, wholeness is not a spotless, blemishless, blemishless perfection. Like, hey, get it right every time. Come on, you're going to get it right. God knows we're not going to get it right every time. But it means having our center of gravity to be always reoriented back to the Lord. Always knowing that he is what we need. Guess what that is? It's a life rhythm of repentance and faith. Repentance and trust. Repentance is like being uh, pulled back to our center of gravity, right? We sort of get wonky and sideways over here and we get pulled back to what we know is what we need most. (laughs) Repentance and faith. But we struggle, and that's why we need that rhythm. Now, if, if we, believers, Christians, struggle with the exclusive claims of love for God alone, if, if we struggle with that, the world doesn't understand it, right? Who do you know in the world that does not know Christ? Do they understand the exclusive claims of God? No, they don't. Kid, kids. Just let's think about this for a second. Y'all can help us out. What what does a cow do? Right? Simple question. Does it does a cow fly? 
A cow does not fly. Does it quack? No. It doesn't quack. (laughs) It moves and it eats grass and it walks around in the field, right? What does a world that does not know God do? Does it love him? No. Does it obey him? No, it does not. Why should we expect a world that does not know God to obey him or love him? Does that mean we condemn the world? No again, right? Because we came from that same place. We love and pursue people that do not know the Lord. We can't get them to behave against their nature. They need a new heart, but we pursue them. Does it make us better? Because we get it and they don't. No again, right? No again. Because when we surrender to Christ, it's actually us saying or admitting that we are more broken and weak than them. We, we can't get this life thing figured out. We need Jesus. It's a humbling place to be when we surrender to Christ. So why does the world not understand the exclusivity of God? This exclusive claim? How many times have you ever heard somebody say, well, don't all religions sort of lead to the same God? Right? Have you heard that? Don't, aren't we all sort of worshiping the same God and using different names? What if I started using a different name for my wife? Think she's going to appreciate that? <laughs> no. God, the true God of Scripture, gave us his name. Remember, we got that last week. Yahweh. I am who I am. He gave us his name. He is specific. We all start in this life by not knowing God personally. Our first parents went there, Adam and Eve, and we inherited that way of thinking all the way through the generations of, I kind of know what's best for me. You know, God, I, I think I can do this on my own. I'm not so sure you know, right? Our, our kid, my kids do that. <laughs> They're born into th- I didn't have to teach them how to think that way. So what functionally happens then? We stand in God's place as God, at least for our own lives, right? I can be God of my life. I know what I need. Let me try to show us that that doesn't work. Let's let's think about that for a minute. The world says, live and let live. I'll do my thing. You do your thing. You be you. But what if being you means coming and taking my house, coming and attacking my family. Whoa, hold on a second. Don't be you. No, 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 no. That's enough, right? We're all going to agree. There's sort of ground rules, right? There's things like, okay, you be you, but don't, don't mess with me. But things start, things start getting muddied there. What if it's more subtle? What if it's like, hey, you be you, and it's a coworker at work, and they decide to sort of be subtle and, and try to make the company artificially better by cooking the books, and then that gets uncovered, and the company goes under, and I lose my job, and ooh, you being you didn't work out so well for me or the rest of the company, right? We sort of know, everyone sort of agrees, like there's ground rules here, right? The question is, who decides them? Who decides the ground rules? Who gets to make that determination? 
Has uh, has any any of you ever ever read Anne Rand or Ayn Rand? I think is how you say her name. Anthem, Atlas Shrugged. Anybody ever read those? Um, I remember reading Anthem in school. <clears> that <throat> she's read. She wrote another book though called The Virtue of Selfishness. Anybody ever read that one? <laughs> I actually read it in seminary when I was uh, just processing worldview stuff and. Here's her premise there in this book. She rejects self-sacrifice as the moral ideal, okay? So self-sacrifice for others is not the moral ideal in her mind. She argues that the ultimate moral value for each human individual is his or her own well-being. Hmm. Since selfishness, as she understands it, is serious, rational, principled concern with others, with my own well-being. Right, she's saying the highest moral good is that I look after me and you look after you. Right? Now she rightly, she's not saying selfishness is like ramrodding through this world and just running over everybody to get what you want. Okay, she she rejects that, thankfully. So it's not that, but she's actually, but she actually is right. I think that concern for one's own well-being is not a bad thing. But here's the thing, her worldview stops short of a good and holy, powerful and loving God. Guess what? If it stops short of him, then she's right. We better look out for ourselves because nobody else is going to. She's saying that's the highest moral good. And she's actually captured the world's worldview pretty well. If I have no God who's looking out for me, who is good and trustworthy and holy and all-powerful, what am I left with? I'm left with my own kingdom, right? It's my kingdom, and I've got to take care of it. I've got to protect it. But guess what? There's seven billion other kingdoms out there because there's seven billion other people. And guess what? They're all going to clash the world doesn't understand the exclusive claims of God. That it's his kingdom. It's, it's his kingdom versus mine. But who decides which, what is right? Who decides the ground rules? Okay. So we've talked about we, believers, we struggle with the exclusive claims of God, right? We struggle with it. We know it's right. We understand it because God gave us a new heart to follow it. <laughs> How do we swim in a world that doesn't even understand it? What do we do? Do we rally the wagons? Do we uh, uh, say our message louder? Hoping like, hey, I keep saying it and turn the volume up. Maybe they'll hear it. You know, it's, I have to admit, there's times when my kids, when they don't listen to me, I turn the volume up. And it's not right for them. But it's sort of like, hey, maybe you'll listen if I say it louder. No, that's not right. It's not going to work. What do we do? I've used... Uh, the marriage illustration in the sermon a few times, but what about singles? What does it look like in this world for a single person to date when as a believer, a single believer, we know we are surrendering to the kingdom of God, his exclusive claims of love, having him alone as God. And you date in a world where that, that, that does, is not understood. Where for that other person, they're there for their kingdom. But as a Christian single person, you're able to say, I'm not here for me, and I'm also not here for you. I'm here for the Lord. How do you do that? How do we do that? 
How do we live in a world that doesn't understand it? I have a, a friend of mine in the, in the parish, and I've had, a conver- I've had many conversations with him about uh, faith, what I believe, what he believes. And he said, Michael, one time he said, you know, I don't mind if, you're, if you try to share your gospel message with me. You know, I'm not, like, it's okay to share it, but he says, uh, as long as you live it out, right? That was really interesting to hear from him. And I think maybe one of the other things that's maybe offensive, aside from God's exclusive claims, is hypocrisy, right? The world doesn't like hypocrisy. Yes, none of us do. And he's basically saying, live out what you say. But how do we live it out? Again, is it this idea of um, saying it louder? How do we get our message out there? I think one of the best pieces of parenting advice I've ever heard was always be willing to ask for forgiveness from your kids. Always be able to repent in front of your kids. Sometimes I don't do that very well because <laughs> of pride. But when I do, it's amazing how my kids respond and they see the gospel. <laughs> it's my way, it's, it's how I can model the gospel in front of them is by repenting and showing them, I need Jesus, I sinned against you, will you forgive me? We need the gospel, I need the gospel too and I need to show my kids in that way. Maybe that's a, the, one of the, that's very close to the heart of living out the Christian faith. Perhaps it's repentance and faith, that simple rhythm that the Lord gave us. Perhaps the world doesn't need, a see, need to see us get it perfect. Because they know we're not perfect. <laughs> and when we try to, they just know, well, that's, that's not reality. I don't think the world needs to see us get it perfect. I think the world needs to see us repent. To see us say, here's how I fall short of God's command of exclusive love and I'm repenting and I'm going back to my center of gravity. So how do we take an exclusive message to a world that doesn't get it? I don't think it's saying it louder. I don't think it's just winning a debate, trying to correct their theology. Those are all aspects of a good conversation with someone perhaps, but what if it's listening to hear them? What if it's modeling repentance and faith? What if it's speaking with love, letting the Holy Spirit do his job and sharing the gospel based on how it's changed us? What if we live out that simple lifestyle of repentance and faith, returning and resting in Jesus, giving us a proper platform for sharing the gospel? As I mentioned at the beginning, we, we, we made our decision on our trip and we went to Outer Banks and it was a, a lot of fun, it was a blast. You know, I think one of the highlights was uh, the, one of the most northern islands on those barrier islands is called Corolla. And at some point the roads just end and you have to have some sort of four-wheel drive and so we, we rented one to get out there, but it's 12 miles to Virginia and we got out there and just drove it all the way and saw very few people and it was awesome and we even got off the beaten path and we uh, found the, the, the holy grail of the outer banks, the wild horses. It was awesome. And so we come home again and we're like, this is, this is great, it was a great adventure. 
But we still have to go home. The adventure ends, right? All adventures come to an end. Even the adventure of life on this earth as we know it right now, it comes to an end, doesn't it? But what does not come to an end? Our exclusive love relationship with the Lord. That does not end. That never ends. He is not just a great vacation option or a great menu item on a list of great items to choose from. That at some point comes to an end and we got to look for something else, right? He is not that. Our relationship with him never comes to an end and he wants our exclusive love so that we will be free and we will stay free forever and he will be our center of gravity. Only when we are recipients of God's fierce love will our exclusive love be drawn out of us in response. May we live that lifestyle of repentance and faith, living into that call together as a church family. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer as we have received his word. Father, we thank you for your word. Again, we thank you for its simplicity. We thank you for its, its call on us. It's your invitation to give you exclusive love. Lord, give us the ability to live out a lifestyle of repentance and faith, living into that, that command, that call, that invitation, Lord. And may we do it in light of the fact that you love first. And that you want your people to be free and stay free. Lord, may we live into our union with Jesus and enjoy this invitation of exclusive love. We ask now in Christ's name, amen.